A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Hello, my friends. Today, my guest is Mark Thompson, the world's number one CEO coach, a title that he inherited from Marshall Goldsmith, our friend and mentor. Uh, Mark is in the MG100 with me, the Marshall Goldsmith 100. He's a leader inside that group, a member of Thinkers 50. He is also the coach to some of the top leaders in business, including Lyft CEO and co-founder Logan Green, Pinterest co-founder Evan Sharp, the CEO of the World Bank, Jim Kim, Richard Branson, Tony Robbins, Charles Schwab, Steve Jobs. He went to high school with Steve Jobs, and he was at Stanford with Jim Collins. He's one of these people that seems to know everybody. He's been everywhere. One of only two people I've ever met who's coached Tony Robbins. He talks about that. I asked him about that in this interview. And of course, Mark is a New York Times bestselling author. He has written Admired, 21 Ways to Double Your Value, that he co-authored with his wife, Bonita Thompson. They've been together 40 years, which is an accomplishment all on its own. Mark has also written Success Built to Last, Creating a Life That Matters. And if that's not enough, he's also a Broadway producer. His plays have earned 10 nominations for Tony Awards and won five. In this interview, we talk about things that make life and work matter. We explore the topics of passion, purpose, and contribution, how to find your passion and your purpose, how to live it. I love a statement he makes. We don't take ourselves seriously enough when it comes to pursuing our joy. We also talk about values and how the values conversation that many coaches and consultants do is crap, but why values and clarifying them are important and how to approach it in a way that's actually useful. We also explore the fact that two out of three people in many surveys, a lot of research shows that two out of three people are unhappy in their current work. And we talk about why we give our power away and play the victim role instead of shaping our life to be exactly how we want it to be. We also talk about the gap between intentions and impact. It's an interesting view Mark has there that's very useful in all of our relationships, our intimate relationships, our work relationships. And then at the end of the interview, as the creative part of the conversation comes online, he shares his advice about getting your ideas and your work to a larger audience. So this interview has been one of my favorites. I'm so grateful that we finally made it happen. Thank you, Mark, for sitting down with me. And thank you for tuning into this. I think you'll take away something you really enjoy, something that will help you be happier and more fulfilled. And uh, if you take Mark's words to heart, something that will help you truly live a life that matters. So with that, please enjoy and apply this conversation with Mark Thompson. 
Mark, welcome to the School for Good Living. Brian, it's such a pleasure to be with you and your family and in your gorgeous home and in your community. Thank you for having me along. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. Okay, Mark, will you tell me, please, what is life about? Life for me is about love, to be loved, to give love, to find love, to spread love. For me, it's a matter of trying to find that balance where we are able to find no distinction between giving and receiving love. Wow. That's beautiful. When people ask who you are and what you do, how do you answer that? I find that since it's about loving, I am an empath. I try to find the bridge between a person's joy and contribution. Mm. Because if you can find that space that feeds you and allows you to contribute, there's magic there. And so my purpose in life is to help people find that bridge. And how do you do that? The process of looking at your own life and joy is one that requires a level, I think, of patience and engagement like never before. That to pay attention to the thing that lights you up, the idea that obsesses you somehow, it's something that you find your mind returned to. Some of those are negative thoughts, and some of those are amazingly constructive thoughts. What is it that really grabs your attention? What is it that makes you feel proud when you're engaged in doing it? What is it that you're doing that you lose all track of time? We did some research around passion. Mm -hmm. I think I'm talking about three different things, passion, purpose, and a sense of contribution. These three areas are what we find drive people to make a contribution and find their joy year after year after year. And in passion, we found passion is something that you lose track of time doing. Some people call it the flow. Mm -hmm. Mikhail Chesmahali studied people who were involved in doing something in a deep way, and whenever he disturbed them in the midst of that process, he'd ask them, how long have you been working at it? And they'd say, I have no idea. That's, that's the flow. People have, know what that feels like, I think, when you're in the flow. Passion is also about doing something that you never see as so much a failure as a, a learning. Yeah, um, It's the thing that you often want to do first. You have decision bias and favor the things that you're passionate about. You like to hang out with people that do your passion. There's lots of measures, I think, to start to get closer to your joy, to pay attention to it. And there, there are many different processes you can go through to try to find that, that path. That's, that's powerful. And as I hear that formula, I mean, it sounds so simple. In fact, some of these things... Simple but not easy as the usual adage, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And one of the things that I hear you know, um, as a coach, and I know you're one of the world's top coaches, one of the world's top CEO coaches, executive coaches, and recently again, recognized as one of the thinkers 50. Mm, thank right? you. Yeah. Yes. Congratulations on that. Appreciate it. It's a privilege. And, and one of the things that I hear, I don't know if, if you hear this when, with the clients you work with, but I hear two things. One is I hear people say, I don't know how to find my passion. Right. I don't know what it is. And you've just offered a few things that if we allow ourselves to say, well, what is it that I lose track of time doing? Or what is it that I choose first? I mean, those things sound so 
doable, like so easy. Yes. But I wonder if this is one of those things that it's so easy people overlook it or what's your experience? Well, I think we actually get talked out of it. Uh, My feeling about passion is that it's usually bound and gagged and thrown in the basement because we're afraid of it. We actually do know what we love. It just terrifies us. And it terrifies us for many reasons. One of the reasons could be the fact that you need to make something of yourself, young man. Mm -hmm. And this isn't it. You know, you're not choosing the path that maybe community or loved ones or people you admire and respect tell you should follow. So that would be a very good reason to perhaps subdue, restrain, or avoid your passion. There's also reasons where you could be finding it in conflict with a a system of beliefs that you were raised on or a culture. You could be out of pace with the place that you are. Maybe little boys don't dance in your neighborhood or they call you names. Would you be dancing? Maybe, but what kind of price are you willing to pay? And what are the trade-offs? There's a chapter in my book, Success Built to Last, where we talk about, you better just give up on your passion before it takes you over or takes you out or, or, or makes you really face what is going to give you joy for a long period of time. And I do that to be purposely controversial because we don't realize. I was just with Venus Williams last week, and she has a number of businesses that she started, and she really believes in the empowerment of women. And she was talking about how, have you ever noticed you're usually the last person in the way before you do something you're passionate about? And it may be that there are just assumptions that are being made about what other, might, what other people might believe. And I've, I talked to Marty Lindstrom in London last week. He's one of the MG100, and he's also one of those who's written New York Times bestselling books on marketing and brand positioning. He wrote a book called Biology, Biology, and he's talking about how you can engage people in finding their passion and then create a consumer community around that, maybe you like in a particular topic area or product area. And long story short, he says, you know, when it really comes down to it, there's only a handful of people who really are thinking and caring about what you do with your life. Mm-hmm. Find that that tribe, find that group, because everyone else is pretty much more involved in their own drama, even though they're passing judgment on yours. Right. They're really not that interested. Yeah. So take off the straight jacket, kick the jail door open, and go for your passion. Oh, I love that. And uh, there's moments when that seems way more doable or yes. way more, you know, like, like it's something that will work out, you know, than others. And, <laughs> and so when I said there were, there's two things I hear. With clients, one is like, I don't know how to find it. The other sometimes is, but I can't make a living doing that. Yes. Right? I mean... That was that first point I was making about, you know, those who love you, maybe legitimately are really worried about you surviving doing that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just before we started recording, we were talking about your life story and, Mm -hmm. you know, the path that you followed, including, you know, being... You didn't say very talented, but I took took that away about being a successful musician mm. and how, you know, although that wasn't necessarily the path you followed, it was a thread that has followed you yes. in, in your life. And, and I wonder, you know, with that as something as a lived experience where I don't know if you saw that as your passion necessarily yes. or yes. Was, but will you just talk a little bit about sure. you know, your experience with music and, and whether or not that was a passion and, and what that is like, what was that was like for you following you know that. Well, coming from a family where we struggled financially, where we had 
Uh, I had a brother who had a brain injury at birth that left him mentally retarded. My mom was one of the last people to have polio in Silicon Valley when it was virtually wiped out, but that put her in a wheelchair. I had a severe eyesight issue, which made it very difficult for me to develop my motor skills or even read when I was in middle school. Mm. So a lot of drama and trauma uh, around my house and pursuing your passions when you're trying to make a living or keep a roof over your head is even magnified further to really drive a sense of fear Yeah, that if I'm just going to do stuff for fun, then how are we going to pay the bills? Yeah. And it sounds so self, it can sound so selfish. It, it can sound completely selfish. And one of the things we found, and one of the journeys that I decided to go on was a very Napoleon Hill sort of journey. I made it my business in life to go meet some of the highest achieving people in the world. People, though, who had been successful for at least 20 years or more, two decades. In other words, a minimum, no, no one hit wonders, but people who had been contributing to their field of profession. It might be out of the spotlight of people. It might be a service worker, could be a self-made billionaire. I met with presidents of countries. I met the Dalai Lama. I met Nelson Mandela before he died. I met self-made billionaires. Uh, I met with people who were educators, who were in government, people who'd had an impact for a long period of time. And then we did a global study on success. How did they define success? And one of the big surprises in that journey was to hear that they define success three ways that I open this conversation around having a sense of purpose larger than yourself, having a sense of achievement or performance. In other words, it's great to have a purpose, but it's really important spiritually and in terms of your cognitive acceptance of challenges to make progress, to feel like you're making progress is very satisfying. And then the third area is passion, which is really just about you. It is selfish. Yeah. If you, it is about you. Yeah. And the problem is we don't take the passion, we don't take ourselves seriously enough when it comes to pursuing our joy. And yeah. that's not something we're generally taught to do no. or feel safe about is the point that you're making. Yeah, yeah. And yet greatness and high performance for long periods of time aren't possible unless we are connected to those three areas, that we feel like we're part of something bigger than us that's maybe contributing to the world, could be a company or a cause, and then making progress towards that goal, and, and, and it's not or, and it needs to be something that gives you some intrinsic joy, that gets you up in the morning, that makes you feel resilient to setbacks, that does... Um, a, a real number on your judgment in terms of all those attributes of following your passions, making decisions about it. Yeah. Those three things together are this virtuous triad yeah. that engage high-performing people in doing their work of their lifetime. It's the difference between good and great. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was at Stanford with Jim Collins, who wrote a book called Good to Great and Built to Last, and then I wrote the sequel, Success Built to Last, with Jerry Porras, with Jim's blessing. And this idea of going from good to great really requires that you take this extra time to trust yourself, Mm -hmm. to trust this passion. And what we found is that people don't just have one passion. So if if you're in an exploratory method of some sort, as you're saying, Brian, you help people who often say, if I could just figure out what my passion is, maybe I could go after that. And could I really make a living doing that? Well, they haven't taken it seriously enough yet. There is a portfolio of passions that high achievers have. There isn't just one thing. Mm-hmm. And so, giving yourself permission to engage 
in more than one passion. Let's say you like doing rodeo. Uh, rodeo. Let's say you like to do uh, you know, horseback riding. Let's say that you also like driving trucks. It's important to experiment with each of those things, like doing a podcast like you're doing here. Um, what we found is that there's one thing that you'll tend to obsess over more than the others, but that all of those things are necessary to refuel. Yeah. No, and rejuvenate. I, yeah, I can totally see that. And I remember when I first learned of this term, uh, overcare. You know, mm. often something that people, especially in the healing fields, deal with. You know, people that they burn out because they're so busy caring for others. Or I've seen this in my work with mm. already with um, mothers. You know, quite honestly, who are managing the household and taking care of their husband and raising the kids and giving, 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 giving to everyone, but not necessarily nourishing themselves. And many mm. of them in my experience, you know, people that I've worked with that they end up bitter, you know, because they've been so externally focused on giving. And I think exactly what you're saying, if they were allowing themselves to fall, and I know I can hear people, I can hear people maybe with a critical ear listening to this, you know, but this point of it is necessary to, I think to nourish ourselves because you can't give from an empty tank. Yes. This is something that's intrinsic to those who have the ability to run the marathon. Mm. And it's, it is about you as it is as much about what other people need from you. And I think we find when we did our research on those three principles of purpose, passion and performance, we, when we, when we did a survey of highly successful people who came out of the Wharton School globally, because we get, could get a, a large list of these people, and we asked them about what it really meant to be successful, and did they really have time for this passion stuff? Because everybody talks about it. Right. And really, was, how did that really factor in? Well, I'll give you an example for myself. I, if I have a creative problem that I want to solve, if I want to, for example, work on a book that you talked about how some people have that ambition to write or write a book, very hard to do, that some of the steps I take are to engage in my passions so that I am not having a direct impact on my conscious mind, which is often filled with doubt. Right. Why can't... Oh, I, it's not fresh, or other people have tried it, or so far people don't dig this. What should I do? I'll, I'll give myself a creative problem, and then I'll go for a run. Or I'll engage in some physical exercise, a game of some sorts, so I'm not directly thinking about it. In fact, I, I, I try to put it out of my mind. Mm-hmm. But I've introduced that concept, that problem set. And when I come back, I cannot think of a time where I didn't have some insight after going into the flow experience and leaving the rational mind behind. Mm. The subconscious mind is still going to be working in yeah. favor of you, working oh, yeah. on that issue, and, and can, can start to contribute some of those insights. And then when the insights come, don't let the rational mind talk you out of them. Start writing down some of those ideas that flow. Maybe that comes up in the middle of the night when you come out of a dream, write down the idea. What I find is that you can start to write down a stream of ideas that can add up into blogs, and then blogs can be socialized through social media so that you can share those with people, get feedback. They could say, those two ideas were great, this third one I don't get. And you can start to curate that idea over time. So what I'm saying is that we can't always trust our rational mind because it's been trained like our parents have and others uh, to kind of look out for us and 
follow a traditional path. When we're trying to be creative, we're trying to break some new ground. And they mean well. That I, I'm convinced that rational mind mm. means well. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, it's not malice, and it's yeah. often not malice from other people either. Yeah. It's that it, they are able to see the world through their lens. Yeah. But we don't really have a lot of training helping others see through their special lens. Each of us has a story to tell, and you need to make yourself feel safe enough to start to tell that story and share it and pay that gift forward. Yeah. So you mentioned this about purpose. And this is a topic that I'm really fascinated by, first of all, because for many years I lived believing life had no purpose, that I had mm, no purpose. Mm, mm. And, you know, I've since learned there's a pretty dramatic difference between nothingness, like in a nihilistic kind of way, like an abyss, and emptiness, as in possibility, you know, mm. maybe an openness. And space. And space. Mm. And so there's, anyway, I'm not sure why that comes to mind except to say to live without a purpose is you know, as I've seen in my own life and lives of people I've worked with can be very painful, you know, it's Absolutely. a different experience. But at the same time, I think w- many people don't know how to find their purpose. Yes. So what's your, what's your take on purpose and what's the relationship if there is one between passion and purpose? There's a definite relationship between passion, purpose, and a sense of outcomes or achievement. We found that was, that was really the triad. That was the, the perfect mix. And part of the problem we have finding a purpose is the same problems that I described with passion, which is we often get talked out of them or others impose them on us. So we're not ever really able to test whether we believe, whether that is something that will guide our actions, which will guide our behaviors. There, in neurobiology and in, in the study of the mind, that we have a brain center at Stanford now, which is starting to really unpack the incredible differences between, it's not exactly the left and right hemisphere that you hear, but there are different regions of the brain. And there's a different region for the brain that speaks and expresses language. And that part of the brain is not the one that makes decisions. That's not the one that guides your actual behaviors. So one of the challenges we find that when you ask someone, let's say, about purpose, and you would start maybe with an exercise of saying, write down your values. The part of the brain that's answering the question as truthfully as it possibly can is not accessing everything that's guided your decisions around your behaviors. I know. I love this conversation because I, I hate... I'm just the values again, exercise? I hate the values oh, exercise. Oh, me too. It's like, that's what you want to read at a eulogy. After I'm dead, you can put down all the values that Mark had. Yeah. And, and it's, <laughs> and Otherwise, it's, you're just trying to impress the next dead person. Yeah. Well, and this whole thing, I'll, I'll try not to go too far off on this tangent, but you know, when consultants come in with these cards and there's like the values, and this, it's ignoring this whole thing about, first of all, that we all map different meanings to different words. Anyway. So, yeah, anyway. So even if the we same have the list same could fa- be the same. That's right. And mean totally different totally things. Totally different things. Absolutely. That's right. And then what you're saying now about whatever we think it is isn't necessarily what it is because there's a different part of us that actually makes decisions or we have these unconscious biases. Exactly. It's yes. remarkable. So so keep going with this and how it relates to purpose and, and passion well, and that. One exercise I do with all my C suite executives who are highly ambitious people. I'm not saying this is normal. These are people who are usually very high impact, uh, very ambitious. Doesn't mean that they don't have a plenty of their own baggage right. and that don't have their own dark, very dark places as creative people mm-hmm. often do. Mm-hmm. Extremely depressed or 
ambitious, very manic depressive, sometimes um, in every part of the universe <laughs> in terms of the personalities. But the exercise I take them through is to explore the proudest moments they've had mm. and start to unpack without asking about values. What was it about those moments that were so enriching? And, and when you do this, do you go all the way back to childhood? Yes. Do you keep it professional? Very beginning. So from all of life, not yeah. just their career. I'm not asking you about your five favorite career moves. I'm asking right. you about what would be that those are five or ten experiences that you were proud of mm -hmm. and why. And then we unpack what might be some of the attributes of those experiences. And mm -hmm. your definition of why, not mine. I'm not judging any of this. I'm not going right. to grade this. Right. I'm having you then go back and score mm. the power and contribution of each of those events in your life. Mm. And I'll find that there's usually 5, 10, 15, 20 attributes of each of those engagements. And then there's a map between the different proud moments. You'll start to see a pattern. I guarantee you, it won't be the list of values that you wrote down. Some may overlap, mm. many won't. Then I do the same exercise with the darkest moments of your life and why it is that they were... As, as difficult and how low they would you go with those. And I find something, this is very hard to just describe without the visuals. But if you think about one of the worst things that happened to you for a moment, almost like you're a clinician, mm -hmm. that it wasn't about you, you're you know, looking at this, this point in your life that, that was dark. Mm -hmm. And you think about why it hurt so much you'll start to describe in words the inverse of some of your actual values. Because what we find is that the, the pride and joy in the life mm -hmm. that you have and the darkest moments are almost like ballast. It's like drowning underwater. It's your joy being sucked underneath the surface of the earth and, and your values are being value, violated in that way. This makes sense to me, knowing we live in a universe of duality. Exactly. Right. So if you were to flip the worst moment mm -hmm. to its inverse, mm -hmm. it might be some of the highest highs. Mm -hmm. And so the process that I go through is trying to unpack without asking the part of the brain that uses language, but the right. part of the brain that's remembering narrative identity. Right. There's a lot of research around narratology, and one of the reasons storytelling is so primal mm -hmm. is because it also is attached to our identity. So if we can look at the stories that describe our best and worst times, yeah. then you're going to get a clear picture of who you are and what your purpose is. You've been living your purpose unintentionally. Interesting. See, that's super interesting because when I hear that, I love the elegance of it and the the way that here's a process that if we approach it like you're suggesting, like as a clinician, you know, with some objectivity and some distance from our experience and things like this, that we can perhaps gain a deep insight yes. about ourselves. And at the same time, there's a little bit of me that goes, well, is that really just us kind of matching or mismatching against whatever conditioning we have? Yes. You know, and then calling it our purpose instead of, but I, I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud as I hear it, you know? Well, actually what this does is sneak up on your conditioning. 
because then we're going to ask you why was that your proudest or darkest moment. Mm. And when you unpack that, I've had people who were convinced they could game it, game the system, mm -hmm. because that's where your conditioning comes in. I don't right. want to be either vulnerable. Yeah. I don't want to go against stated values that might be acceptable in my family, my community, my tribe, my spouse, my partner. So there's, there's no way to escape conditioning, which is why asking a list of values is pointless. Yeah. Because your conditioning and your lack of capacity to describe all your values with that part of your brain is a, makes a very low probability that you're going to find your actual values. But your behaviors have been a reflection of those values for a very long time. Yeah, that and for anybody who's listening to this now, especially if you're in this field of coaching or even say mentoring, advising, working with others in a capacity that you're helping them understand themselves more deeply or expand their awareness. This, if you haven't already stumbled upon this insight, I, I hope that this is really opening up something for you to really serve others, to help them see the truth of what they believe and what they desire is, or even what they feel is reflected in their behaviors. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. that's such a massive thing. And if we want to get past whatever, looking good or getting by, right. you know, that really being, being honest about that, yeah, right. being accepted. Right. So that, that's huge. Okay. So that's, I like that. That's pretty, that, like I said, that's pretty straightforward to start to come at our purpose by looking at our proudest moments. Our behaviors. Our behaviors. That, have, yeah. that has led up to the life that we have been leading. And the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior that is an adage that ends up yeah. being true. I hate to admit that. But. Yes, <laughs> but habits die hard. Yeah. And they usually come from a place, and it could be conditioning. But you're not trapped in that if yeah. you can unpack the why behind what's driving those and where your joy really is lacking or lurking. And, yeah. and whether you or others have been actively trying to suppress it because of fear. Um, that still might be the decision that you come with, but then it would be a choice. There's another dimension of this, I think, that comes around playing the victim. Say more about that. So I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm much more comfortable being a victim because then I give my power away. Uh, well, yeah, and it's always easier to blame someone else. Yes. And <laughs> right. so as long as it's your fault and you have to change and I don't, yeah. it takes work yeah. to do what we're describing here. Sound, that's why that's the simple but not easy part. Mm -hmm. Is a diet that difficult to understand? No but almost impossible for most of us to follow yeah. because it's, it means that we have to activate our disbelief that choice matters and choice mm -hmm. does matter. So being a victim is where we often are falling when we are not able to pursue something that we're happy about. I can't make money at that. I can't contribute this way. All of the people who've had the highest impact did not ultimately think about how to get paid for what they do in money until they also felt about what they needed to do to have impact. And mm -hmm. then they made money at it. And I see a metaphor for this. I come from Silicon Valley. It's a classic place where a sense of purpose and contribution comes prior to a business model. Yeah. Happens all the time. Yeah. I, I helped incubate, you know, many companies yeah. that didn't have a business model. Well, the, I mean, that was Pinterest, right? And yes. you, you advise the founders of Pinterest. And I remember when I learned that they had at the time an $11 billion valuation 
and had never generated a dollar of revenue. And in fact, if I understood it right, didn't even have a revenue model at yes, that time. That's correct. And I'm like, that is nuts. Yes. Well, they were just nuts enough to be following their passion. <laughs> <laughs> and they had a sense of purpose. And the difference that they had, and I, I don't take any credit for their discovery of what a business model would be or for the nature of the inc- incredible work they did. I mean, one of the great things about the, the privilege of being a coach and being able to take part of the journey with, with Ben and Evan was that I love watching people play on the court or on the field at a level I never possibly could. But if I could enable that or unlock that passion and purpose at scale, that's what I'm all about. Much better coach than I am a player. And I think that's typical of, of many coaches and teachers and advisors and knowing that that is actually a valid place to sure. be in the ecosystem. Otherwise, I'd, I'd have to accept the fact that I'm a slacker compared to everybody I coach, which is definitely true. And you take something like Pinterest, this is a whole organization of pages that are driven by what? Joy. Yeah. And not showing off, not being like maybe other social media platforms that might be more focused on presenting you in a, in a way that makes you look as most attractive or all the rest. This is about going down the well of passion and joy for its own sake. Yeah. And that is extraordinary. As it turns out, that's also a great advertising model because if people grab photos from the, the world that they love and they put it on their site, I think you don't have to get creepy in understanding what they love, do you? No. I know what you not, love because yeah, you just put it there. Just, right. Now I can sell advertising against that. That's a yeah. really legitimate, straightforward way to create a business model out of joy. And it's worth more than $11 billion now. Yeah, quite Went a bit. public this year. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Well, and, and your comment too about, you know, people who follow their passion and, and that, you know, they're aligned with their purpose, making, making a major contribution without ever, or at least initially giving thought to how do I monetize this? How do I, right. you know, how do I earn profit doing this kind of thing? Um, it's really more about the value that you create or the impact that you're having. You do yeah. need to worry about that. Sure. That's the purpose, please. That's about having an impact greater than yourself, not just following it but actually intentionally developing the skills, capacity, discipline, and structure so that you can make a difference in the lives of other people. And then they will pay you for that. Right. But it should be doing something you love so that you actually get great at it. Yeah. Not mediocre, not just good enough to make a paycheck, but good enough to make a real difference. Yeah. Well, and somebody that, somebody that, that comes up when you talk in that way uh, that I think is an extraordinary example of this is Tony Robbins. And Mark, you're one of only two people that I've met who I know that in your professional bio, you list that you have coached Tony Robbins. Yes, right. <laughs> well, you he's talk- the ultimate coach. Right. And, and he's so, coached me a lot more. <laughs> yeah. So it is, <laughs> but I know, feel privileged. The law of reciprocity in, yes. in effect in the yes, universe. Yes, of course. Unavoidably so. But will you, will you talk just a little bit about what that was like? Well, Tony Robbins ends up being a person who's got a gift beyond imagination in terms of the contribution he's made on people's lives, mm-hmm. the, the impact that he's had on transforming his own life yeah. into something that's given him meaning. And uh, he and Sage invited me down to Namali, um, where they have in Fiji, during the financial crisis. And they were going through the whirlwind that 
the world was experiencing mm -hmm. at that time, and really thinking about their empire and their their portfolio of products and services and impact and their next act. And I met him at an event that I was speaking at, and he invited me to, to make the trip there that weekend. He says, uh, do you happen to be available? We, I forget where we were. We were in New York or Los Angeles when I was giving a presentation at, at some business excellence seminar that was being run by he and Chet Holmes. And uh, he called me in back and he says, you know, I'm thinking about these things. Uh, let's talk about some of the people that you know and some of the business models that you've experienced and let's compare some notes. So we spent an amazing week together down there unpacking his wow. amazing life and uh, fell in love with Sage, his, his lady. And uh, we and my daughter and wife had the experience of being able to learn from him what he would do to, to transform his world at, at a moment which was dark for so many parts of the world. Yeah. And he's, he's done so well since then. Yeah, he has. Absolutely. And I haven't known him personally, but I've been around him. Um, a couple of years ago, my wife and I joined his Platinum Partnership. And oh, yes. So you've taken trips together. And yeah. Had the privilege many, many of going places to around the world. With him. Yeah. I feel very, very fortunate for that. But that's one thing that I've loved to watch, you know, as I look back, his progression is, you know what, I came home from Date with Destiny and read Awaken the Giant Within, and I saw that that book was written almost 25 years prior, but the 1-800 number in the back of the book still worked. <laughs> it was like, he's been so on so focused, yeah. this whole time. It's been, it's been amazing. You don't have to guess what profession he was in for a very long time. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, and you just mentioned your wife, Bonita. Yes. Um, and you've written a book together. Yes, we have. Right? You wrote Admired. And this book, 21 Ways to Double Your Value. Yes. Right? Will you tell me, why did you, why did you write this book? It's really, let me ask the question this way. Who did you write the book for? Yes. And what did you want it to do for them? I spoke a little earlier about the work that we did with Success Built to Last. And Built to Last was a book that was written at Stanford by Jerry Porras and Jim Collins at a time when there was a hope and belief that you could find a set of operating principles for a business that would be built to last. Mm -hmm. And so they used that as a meme. And it was about what would you do in terms of organizational structure? How would you build that business, run that business? Who would it be for? And so I was attracted to the idea of how to take those principles that a business would operate and personalize them. So what would be built to last principles for you mm -hmm. as an individual, as a a person who's developing a career or a life. How could you be built to last? And we did a global study of the most successful high-impact, high-achievers for those who were high-impact for at least 20 years or more. And we found that the secret of creating a life that matters, that success built to last, was a process of creating a life that matters to you, right? uniquely for you. So that global research we did on success led itself to an another question that people would ask us. Just like they asked Jerry and Jim about Built to Last, what, what could you do in a company that you could do for yourself that would make you Built to Last? Now, what could you do to create a leadership team that would be able to energize and engage people? Because all of the research, Gallup or otherwise, says that two out of three people are unhappy in their work or jobs. We all feel that, right? It's, a, it's amazing to me. It's a terrifying majority of people yeah. who, who actually are gainfully employed, who are 
depressed, unhappy, disengaged, and there's a proportion of every employee population who's actually actively working against the system or against the company or against each other. That blows my mind. And, and those people spending maybe the majority of, the, of their day complaining about others, playing the victim and, and being unhappy in, in that way. So we had an interesting insight about that. After having studied only the people who are the most successful in the world, looking at these high achievers... Then we were interested in saying, okay, a lot of research has been done to find out that two out of three people are unhappy in the office. What about that third that is engaged? What do they look for in a leader? Who would they follow? Because isn't that who we want to attract to our organizations, to our communities, to any company that we're building? We want to attract people who are engaged, inspired, and happy at their work. Who do they want to follow? So we did a study, one of the first studies, on who you'd admire as a leader. So we reverse-engineered Gallup's most admired people list and Fortune's most admired companies list and see if we could find what would be the principles. We found 21 ways to increase your value in your job, in your career. Wouldn't you like to be more valued, admired, and respected for what you do? Who Absolutely, doesn't? yeah. I remember at our conference that I held at Stanford, I, I asked the folks had 2,000 people in the audience, and I said, is anyone here ever feel overvalued? <laughs> have you ever felt overvalued? I don't care who you are. You probably have never felt overvalued. In fact, the only person who ever raised his hand about being overvalued, overvalued was Marshall Goldsmith. <laughs> he said, I've, well, I've been overvalued. I said, good for you. You're the rare minority of people. So I, Benita and I, as partners, as life partners and career partners, Benita spent 30 years in corporate human resources. She's been a disruptor and innovator herself. She's always worked in organizations that were inventing a new industry. She was one of the few first people to start the biotechnology company, Genentech, hired the first 200 people there. So she was an entrepreneur before I was. She helped reinvent Bank of America when it was going through a transformation. She helped build uh, Levi Strauss and the first human resources intranet, the first computer system to wow. support the people there. So she's been a serial entrepreneur, intrapreneur, as we call it, within organizations and HR. And so to be married to this person who's an expert on human resources, behavioral psychology, and was a computer science major and got her degree in business at the Haas School of Business. She studied under Federal Reserve Chairman Janet Yellen before she was Federal Reserve Chairman. So I've got this technical research partner who's a behavioral psychologist. I'm an entrepreneur and a business builder. And we thought, what better way could we represent the most admired teams than to be one? So as life partners and as business partners, Benita Thompson and I decided that we'd write a book called Admired, 21 Ways to Double Your Value. And so we get as many questions about how the heck could you work with your spouse on a book yeah. and still yeah. be married? <laughs> I was about to go there, by the way. Was, well, you yeah. should. I'm happy, I'm happy totally to go there. And we've done many speeches together as partners because if there's one thing that's necessary in every career and every team and every organization, is it's, it's about the team. Right. And so you don't see teams on stage talking about that. You don't see partners even talking about that very often. So my wife and I are, you know, we've been together 40 years. Wow. And we've had many, many experiences and we've built organizations separately and together. And so it's part of our mission now in this phase of our life to help pay that forward as partners. That's so awesome. I've barely been alive 40 years. <laughs> That's right. I, mean, I know it's embarrassing it, to use that. No, number. it's, it's amazing. Like it's so impressive. So 
This is one of my questions for the enlightening lightning round, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it here. So relationships are hard. Yes. What has made, uh, and forgive me if this is too personal, but there's nothing too personal. What has made yours work? Fair fight. So one of the things I think people spend more time and energy doing, and this is as true for a personal relationship as it is in business, frankly, is how much time do we spend proving that we're right for its own sake. Yeah, I, I don't like to admit that. <laughs> don't you prefer to be right than do the right thing? Often, yeah. That's the truth. Yeah. We spend a lot of energy in the office, in the community. And it, it, you know, part of it's driven by the best of intentions because we think we're thoughtful people. We think that we're loving people. We think that we have the right intentions. But what, what one of the things we've found in, in years of doing research around this is there's a huge gap in humanity between your intentions and the impact that you have in others. So here's the double standard in all relationships, business and personal. We judge ourselves based on our intentions. I didn't intend to hurt your feelings. I didn't intend to do that badly. I intended to do the right thing. I didn't intend to have an, I didn't do, I didn't intend to do anything wrong or make you feel badly. The outcome and the impact is different from my intentions. The way it landed by the time it hit your side of the table is very different. And you're going to judge yourself by intentions, but you're going to judge me by my impact. And there is a fundamental, as a coach, if there's one thing I spend the majority of my time working on in organizations, and I suppose it'd be true if I was a marriage and family therapist, and it's come up more than once, as you can imagine, having had a long-term marriage and been successful in helping some of the greatest long-lasting unicorns in history, it's been a privilege of mine, is to understand the difference between intentions, your intentions, Mm -hmm. and the actual impact of your words and outcomes. So if you really are playing to win, if you really are playing to have the impacts, outcomes, effectiveness that you'd like to have, if you'd like to really be heard, Mm -hmm. then you need to think about the difference between what you intended and how it landed on other people and what the impacts were, because that's our double standard. We always judge others on impact, and we judge ourselves by intention. Mm. That's, that's huge, and I've never thought of it that way, but now that you're saying it, I can see that in some of the misunderstandings or disagreements you know, in my own marriage, that you know, I will hear back from, you know, from my wife, the impact of some of my behavior, and then I'm explaining that's not what I intended, honey. Exactly. Well, no, I actually, I get that. You didn't intend that at all, but that's how it landed. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that. Of course. That that distinction. That's, I think that's very useful. Let me, let me ask another question about admired. So you, you did this research, you found this 21 ways to double your value. What surprised you? Well, the, the, the nature of the exploration ended up coming down to this. And the first step is to understand the difference between intentions and impacts. But here's another way to impact uh, or to really express that. I think that might be easier to, to think about. And that is, how much do you feel valued by your organization, your company, your club, your tribe? And if you were to assign a, a number to that, you know, what number would that be on a scale of zero to 10? Well, we ask people that question all over the country. And, and people. And by the way, just to understand, when you ask this, 
is it anonymous? I mean, like, because yes. people's answers are completely be anonymous. Okay. So they, have so we did an anonymous survey. Okay. We didn't ask about who you were addressing. Yeah. We talked, we did a Gallup like poll of a mm-hmm. thousand people. Okay. And we said, so give that a ranking. And, and people would say, you know, how valued do you feel by your organization? Mm-hmm. And, uh, people give that maybe a four. Um, and then we asked them, how valued do you feel by your spouse? And maybe a five. Uh, and then what about, your very best friends and family, maybe as high as a six on a scale of 10. So that's interesting. Okay, so you don't feel like exactly overvalued. Uh, you wish it was higher than that. Okay, let me reverse that for a moment. How much do you know about the values of the people who you'd like to be valued by? How much do you really know about the, your, your boss's values? Well, people were giving that a three. They don't know very much about it at all. How much do you really know about the values of your friends and family? It's a, it's a lower number mm-hmm. in all cases. So there's this basic principle you mentioned earlier about reciprocity. Mm-hmm. How can you expect to be highly valued by people whose values you've never taken any time to understand? I expect to be hugely... Your, your happiness in your job is directly correlated to your relationship with your boss. How well do you know how your boss is being judged to be successful in her job? Most people, and myself included, it's, it's how, not, not how well do you know that? So, yeah. if you knew how your boss was being judged, uh-huh. your spouse is being judged, your kids are being judged, and you could help enable that, do you think they'd value you more? Oh, 100%. So, this is really the, the, the core the core principle that we learned in this work about being admired, because if you can, if you could find out what it is that others value, they'll value you more for valuing them. It's, it's the reciprocity principle in humanity is enormous. And so if you want better relationships, make it your business to understand how you can make the people who you value most more successful. You get success by giving it to others. Mm. That, ma- that makes sense. Success is generated only when you find ways to make others successful. Yeah, and what, what's interesting to me in this is I think, and you can share with me your view, but I think you could substitute the word love for success in that sentence and it would still be true. Mm. Absolutely, which is where I started. My job is to help you discover what you love, who you love, and how to love them and yeah. why. And so absolutely true that this is why... And this is what separates you from being the victim. Because if you realize that becoming successful by, you, you, by generating success for others, they will reward you with success. Now, now you're going to think of a hundred times when people didn't reciprocate and when they were mean to you anyway, or they bullied you anyway. Mm-hmm. That is actually beside the point. For those who, when you ultimately are successful, it is because you made other people successful. Yeah. You know, just to go back to Tony Robbins for a minute, I I listened to a recording he did once of you know the success kind of this his version of the success principles you know yes yes and when people asked him to give this soundbite answer the one most important thing that will help you be successful that was exactly what he said about helping others be successful like right. the bottom line one thing you could do yes to achieve success is help others be successful and I'd heard that but. You know, I didn't really believe it, but here it's coming up again. Generate value for them. So yeah. that's what, when you really make it your business to understand what somebody values, mm-hmm. 
by watching their behavior, by listening to them, by interviewing them, by seeing what it would be that would be a game changer in making them successful. I just was doing an interview on LinkedIn at the headquarters in, on, at the Empire State Building, and they have a studio where they do coaching on career. And they said, you know, what do you do when you're in that interview? And, and how do you have a good impact? And how do you make sure you optimize your salary? And I said, remember, the interview is not about you. It is not about you. They have a problem they need to solve. They need a person to solve that problem. Do you understand what the problem is and can you help them solve it? And then they'll recruit you to the cause. This interview isn't about you. It's about mm. them. And it's a whole new way of thinking about generating value yeah. and success that comes from being so focused on what other people need that they'll pay you to help deliver it. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that one thing too right there, I mean, that's a a gem, I think, in this conversation that we're having now that, again, if listeners really took that away, where if you are finding yourself in the role of looking for employment you know, or joining a team, really understanding the, that view that these people have something they're trying to accomplish, they have an obstacle they're looking to overcome, and if you're just going in like, what's in it for me? Right. You know, you're probably not going to be received very well. And that that whole thing, I mean, on the basic, that's why, and I maybe should you know, one of my, one of my first questions in the, in, in, in an employment interview is what do you know about this company? Mm, exactly. Right. Because already you start to get a sense of, are, is this a person that's me centric or, or are they engaged? Yeah. Or they, do engaged? they care? Do they even begin to understand what we're about and what we're trying to do? Absolutely. You know? And so. I think both, and you're pointing it out as an interviewer that ends up being a common mistake with the interviewers as well. The best way to interview people is to find out how engaged they are, how much they know about the company and engage in what we call behavioral interviewing, which would be to say, so under these, have you ever had a scenario in which this was experienced and you had a setback or a failure? And what did you do when you made that mistake and had to express that failure? Take me through that experience. Mm -hmm. And then listening to them talk about how they faced that crucible, took the heat, made it right, tells you, an awful lot about them in oh, ways yeah. that might not be as well packaged as they came very well rehearsed. Right. They, everybody comes in on their best behavior, yeah, <laughs> right? Or they sure. try to be. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, and talking about um, leadership, uh, knowing you work with some of the most successful leaders in the world, um, what do you see is the biggest area of opportunity for leaders to improve their effectiveness as leaders? I mean, I know that's a general question, but you've worked with you know, many people for many years. I'm wondering if there's you know, maybe one or two things that you see that just seems to be like, if somebody did this or somebody stopped doing this, mm. they'd, they'd be more likely to get to the next level as a leader. I think it's true for the most successful people and those who might be running um, something where you might say, you know, I just want to start my first business and I have a micro business or I want to serve customers for the first time. Very same principle, whether you're running a multi-billion dollar company or you're starting that first paper route. Mm -hmm. And it is this, nobody does anything worthwhile alone. It's again, not about you entirely. It's about who you could recruit to that dream to help partner with you and support you. Every great long-lasting organization starts with one person who can infect another person enough with that vision 
can find the complementary skills, which are often different, and build that dream together. And it can be a trio, and it might then grow from there. Finding that person who often will have marketing and sales skills isn't always the person who can do the accounting or the legal or the regulatory stuff. There is often great partnerships. Most small businesses are run by partners. Sometimes they're married, sometimes not. Often are complementing each other's skills and realizing it that you can't do it all. Charles Schwab is a famous dyslexic who was almost cooked out of, kicked out of Stanford twice because he couldn't do the bonehead English. Genius at math, pretty darn good at marketing, great entrepreneur, big heart and soul. At the Stanford Graduate School of Business, was probably the first to scale a major multi-billion dollar business, not because he was the, the person who he would ever consider to be the smartest in the room, but he could recruit like hell. He could find other people who were like-minded peers, who were experts in all the different areas to build that organization. And he would use all the principles in my book, Admired. He'd admire others for those values. So that's the next in the progression of, so you've found out the values of that other person. It's not just about you getting promoted, but if you want to build a business, you want to find people you admire in all the different expert areas of that business that complement your skills, and then eventually replace yourself. So mm. my, my adage always says you can't scale an organization any faster than you can scale yourself. You have to find other people who are better, stronger, faster, impassioned at that. And so building organizations or just building your career will often come down both to your quality of life and your success in that business to the quality of people that you can attract who can own it as much as you do. And, and, and attract them to that, to that journey. I can totally see that. And that goes all the way back to the thing pretty much we started with about this purpose, passion, and, mm. mm-hmm. and, and was, remind me how you phrased it, but the thing about giving to others, serving others. Yes, this idea that you want to find a way to contribute to others through, the, through your purpose. Right. And then deliver on that. That's performance. The performance. Three P's, performance. Yeah. Um, being able to make good on that yeah. promise. And then passions, because you are doing something that you would intrinsically do, even if it weren't to be successful. It would be something you're attracted to doing. And that's usually what you find in your partners. When we did the research on purpose, passion, and performance, the definition of success, we found that you will tend to index towards one of those areas more than the other two. In other words, some people tend to be a bit more passion-driven than purpose and performance-driven. Other people, in other words, this might be the person who continues, like Steve Jobs, to tinker on the beauty of the product. In the meantime, the performance people are saying, look, we got to make sales this quarter or we're out of business. We can't make, we have a minimum viable product, so let's get this thing rolling. That's your sales staff saying, let's deliver this, let's win, let's get it out there. And the passion people say, oh, it could be a little more perfect and beautiful and all the rest. And they're both right. And then the purpose-driven people saying, look, guys, we need to know who we're building this for. Who's our customer? Where's our organization going? How can we be competitive in the marketplace? And so what we found is if you want to build a great organization, you need all three. You need people who tend to be a little more purpose-driven, a little more passion-driven, or a little more performance-driven. And we find the, pop, the general population when we did our global survey comes out in thirds. Hmm. So part of your job is to recruit people who are not like you. Yeah. When people talk about diversity and talk about inclusion, what we really feel is so important with the success of organizations is that 
diversity doesn't just have a face. It has a way of life. It has a way of contributing. It has a, the new ideas. If you're all the same, then you're not going to contribute as well as if you can have complementary skills yeah. and personalities. No, I know that's true. And, and what research is showing, as you're saying here, uh, about what's going to make us take us to the next level as a leader, is this about a team yes. and a recruiting? And this, that the research is showing very clearly that, that teams perform better than individuals. And diverse teams perform better than non-diverse teams. Yes. So, but I'd never, I'd actually never thought about that in my own business until a couple of years ago when mm. I realized the people that I had surrounded myself with, they were, I think they were all very much like me <laughs> and I hadn't even given thought to the diversity of what you're saying here. Yes. So anyway, people that can. Different sensibilities, that, different yeah. capacities. I yeah. mean, for the people who do marketing and sales, they ought to be admiring, loving, and relieved that other people want to do the accounting. Yeah. And the accountants ought to be really delighted that there's somebody focused on the customer and would really like to solve a problem because if you don't have revenues, you don't have a business. Yeah. It takes right. all kinds. That's right. For sure. Okay. So I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. Before I do, I just want to ask one last question in this portion of the interview about our good friend, Marshall Goldsmith. Yes. So, with Marshall, well, okay, so I do have a question, but now that it's coming up, I'll just say this. Um, Marshall's a pretty special human being. We love Marshall. Yeah, he's- He's an inspiration to me. He's amazing. What, man, I know this could be its own whole interview. Okay. But but what, what have you learned from Marshall? Everything about coaching, I think, that has been valuable to me, that has been the biggest set of game changers- has been inspired by Marshall Goldsmith. I take one example of the, of a practice that I've started to engage in that I mentioned to you, I think, at dinner, which was if you could bring together people who are feeling isolated because they maybe have a big job, a big dream, not necessarily like-minded people about them all the time that they can feel vulnerable with. I, I love creating a space as Marshall has done for years, for people to have a, a wonderful mastermind dinner and allow them to, in an environment where nobody has an agenda, nobody's trying to make a sale, nobody's trying to close a deal, nobody's trying to impress. These are often in my world, in Marshall's world, I, I met him because 25 years ago we were both hired to do the grooming of two competitors for the corner office and they didn't want to have the same coach. Wow. So Marshall and I took on the two division presidents in a race to the corner office. And I met a guy who taught me this practice of creating a safe space for small groups of people to have brutally frank conversations about what their struggles were, what their challenges were to finally start to, to open up about what really was driving their behavior about this need to be right this need to contradict. And the stakeholder-centered coaching model was probably the first time that I'd ever seen a model in which this is something that Marshall invented, this idea of saying that you'll not be judged by me, the coach, you'll be judged by your peers, the ones that you're having impact. Mm -hmm. So this intention versus impact ends up getting flushed out very quickly because yeah. the coaching model is to have one area that you're working on, that you are vulnerable enough to say, I'm going to have some loving critics 
who might otherwise be my competitors at the table, giving me feedback on a frequent and regular basis. And as Alan Mulally would say, the former Boeing and Ford CEO, if you don't want to do it, that's okay. But we're not working together. So the table stakes are, we're going to choose one thing I can do to get better and be a higher impact, higher achiever in this organization. I'm going to be vulnerable enough to tell you what that is. Let's say I'm going to be a better listener. You're going to judge me after every interaction that we have. You're going to score me on this. I call that radical mentoring. It's frequent enough so it takes the sting out. It's not something you wait a quarter or a year for. And at the end, we'll decide if we get better or not. And I won't be judging that. Your community of people that you care about will judge you. And it's yeah. transformational for those people. And it's really at the very core of Marshall's book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There about how as high achievers or successful people, we assume that all the baggage we took with us to become successful made us successful. But the truth is we could jettison some of that baggage and be a lot better Yeah. and focus on that one thing to get better. So that's what he does. And that's inspired me and it's inspired millions. Yeah, it's inspired me and, he, and his generosity. It's yeah. so different. Yeah. And this idea of paying it forward and he's giving everything away. Um, I think... He now famously tells the story of, you know, telling folks that he was going to give everything away, and it was the most watched LinkedIn video in history. And he, the, the great, fortunate, serendipitous mistake that he made was he didn't tell people how to contact him, so the whole system blew up. And it just <laughs> completely lit up, and 16,000 people applied to be a part of this wonderful community that you and I are part of, the Marshall yeah. Goldsmith 100. Yeah, it's, it's really special. So, thank you, Marshall. Thank you, Marshall. Yes, we <laughs> yeah. love you, man. Yeah. Okay, so the enlightening lightning round. Question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. <laughs> Life is like a... Loving partnership with my wife. Number two. What's something at which you wish you were better? Many things. Particularly music. I'm resisting going on a tangent, but... I'm curious. <laughs> Maybe I'll come back to that. Okay. okay. Well, at least what aspect of music? I love musical theater, and I love composition. I love lyra lyricism. I'm writing a Broadway musical now, and I'm finding the creative process both extraordinary and, and something that just connects me in a whole different way to my world. Okay, so now curiosity has really got me. <laughs> Writing a Broadway musical. Where do you even start, right? Because you have the stage action. Yes. It's all the stage direction. You've got all the music. You've got all the storyline, like all this. Like, where do you even begin? And what's the inspiration for this? This ends up, thank you so much, Elizabeth. Elizabeth just handed me some wonderful fresh spring water here. That was very thoughtful of you, sweetie. Appreciate that. So the question was about where do you start to do a Broadway musical? Yes. Uh, it would be the same question you'd ask yourself about getting a blog or a book done. What you do is look at the essential parts and give yourself permission to suck at it and just be horrible and just try out various ideas and also oversimplify. So in this particular case, this will be a great example of oversimplification. So I got this idea. I had been going to this club with my wife and, and many of my clients called 54 Below. It's 254 West 54th Street in Manhattan. And it's a speakeasy, um, a place where Broadway entertainers come and do little short musical reviews in a small dinner theater that's only about 100 people. And they'll do a couple of acts a night. And it was a 
simplified version of a Broadway show, more of a musical review, 45 minutes long, really short. So if you think about a big, massive, overwhelming creative project, think, is there a way to do this shorter, easier, simpler? And so I thought maybe we could do some things around a topic that you and I share, particularly you, Brian, being a coach. It is a target-rich environment for the dysfunction and struggle that we all face as human beings. If I could do a parody and satire on coaching in musical form, I thought that would be great fun. And I started listening to old musical theater, and I found lots of great examples of not having to change the lyrics very much, but using a familiar out-of-copyright old tune and come up with a storyline around a person who's trying to make her way as a high achiever in her career, and we're going to call her High Potential, and she's going to find her way through this journey in 45 minutes, and we're going to sing songs about all the players from evil, soul-sucking bosses to the Yoda-like characters who help you along the way and do a, just a parody on coaching. And it'll be something that, uh, you know, it's when the leadership hits the fan. It's when <laughs> don't stop in the leadership, don't step in the leadership. Um, and we'll just offer this to friends and family who come. I don't have to make money at this. This is an experience that I, I love giving. I, you know, as I did last fall, I, I love having experiences where people can come together and look creatively at the leadership journey, whether I'm doing that with entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley at Stanford or doing the Harvard Institute for Coaching, or doing a, a satire parody on leadership on Broadway. It sounds fun. It's going to be great fun. And it's, I'm over my skis, so it's something bigger <laughs> than I've done ever before, but that's, that's part of what makes it a great creative challenge. Yeah, that is awesome. Well, thank you for sharing of that. Of course. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Yeah. Come December 16. December 16. That sounds wonderful. Awesome. We'll take you to Broadway. That's Marshall and I will be on stage as your muse. Right on. I, I, <laughs> I, that is one thing I love about this community is it, music is a part of it. It is. He it's loves really, music too. It's really important. We yeah. did a song called What You What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> that's awesome. Ah, that's really fun. Okay. All right. Question number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life, to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Focus. Love it. Okay, number four. What book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? What got you here won't get you there would probably be standard issue for the coaching practice if you haven't read it before. Mm. Okay. What about a, what about a non-coaching related book? And that is a great book, by the way. Coaching and Leadership even personal growth. Um, aside from that book, what else? For that, I'd have to say that the recommendation of a book, often for me, is something of an, a, a, an, a reflection of where I might be in my own personal development. Mm. And so what might speak to me wouldn't necessarily be for everyone, but if you're asking me you know, about a favorite book. There is a, a currently a book called Secret Life of Trees. Uh, and it's an exploration of, of the, the magic and majesty of how impossible uh, most flora and fauna is mm -hmm. and how it can be appreciated as a metaphor for our lives. Oh, that's beautiful. I visited the, I think it is the Botanical Garden in San Francisco. Oh, yes. And saw, that was the first place I came in encounter with that book. Is that, that right? Yeah, yes. I haven't read it yet, but it's on my list. It's fun. So that's it's cool. Fun. 
Well, good. Okay, so number five. So you travel a ton. Yes. What is one travel hack, meaning something you do when you travel or something you take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Well, I have two thoughts. Is that all right? Of course. Uh, the, to, to the extent that you can actually think about the people that you might connect with in the process of travel, I find that that is very grounding. That one of the adventurous pieces in my life was to actually homeschool our daughter for a 10-year period mm. before she mainstreamed in high school and college. And part of that was out of the pragmatism of the fact that the doctors said that she would never get through high school and certainly not even reach college. And, you know, after waiting 20 years to be parents, we were not going to stand for that. And she had inherited my DNA around eyesight issues. Well, that was fighting words. So we decided that we would integrate in our wonderful lives, since Benita and I are coaches and researchers and investors and board members in growing companies, I'm regularly asked or paid to go around the world. And most of the places that I visit are remarkable places where companies have their retreats or management gets together or a new company is being built. So brought the daughter with us and my wife. And so we went to on 100 international trips to 42 countries by the time my daughter was 16. Holy cow. And so that was transformational for all three of us. It was a do-over for me who suffered and struggled through my youth and a dad who wasn't around, in addition to all the struggles we had at home. So I got to be the dad I never had. And my wife and I and daughter, it lit her up. We would hire subject matter experts where we needed it. Of course, my mother's um, been someone who started, introduced me to high school education because she was an educator. My wife, Benita, has a you know, doctoral degree from the University of Pennsylvania, one of the great education schools. So she is an educator. So this was our clinical work and take wow. our daughter. So that was the ultimate travel hack. I mean, yeah. it's not something that most people do, but even with people with privilege and resources, it's, it's interesting they don't travel enough with their kids. It's transformational for everybody. If you don't have that as an option, just to be very practical about travel, think about taking care of yourself and um, think about your um, getting enough sleep and enough mm -hmm. water and eating well. That's yeah. probably the, the most practical hack I can give you for travel to feel good. Yeah, and it's so easy to overlook those yes. things. Yeah, circadian rhythm and so forth. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so just a few more questions here. Uh, question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? I've been, as I age, I've been paying more attention to my diet. I'd say it'd be the most significant. Uh, being from a family of diabetes and knowing that it transformed my mother's life, even though she was a person who had to suffer through polio, she didn't realize that once she got the bad news about type 2 diabetes that she had 50 pounds to lose. Mm. And I saw her at the age of 60 start swimming a mile and wow. dropping all that weight. And then she went on to live another 25 years. Good for her. And good for you. Her dad yeah. had died young, lost yeah. limbs, and went blind. Wow. Unnecessary. And it's such a plague in this country about sugar and the, and what we eat. So I really had to struggle for a moment to answer your question because my wife has guided us towards a, a gradual transformation of the way we eat fresher foods, more vegetables and, and uh, 
not just animal proteins and less processed foods. And I, I would say that I probably tend to be more ketogenic, the diet that tends to eliminate refined carbs. So I don't get the sugar hit that you, that would might affect my blood sugar. And I found a couple of things out. I mean, I'm 62 years old. I can drop and do 50 pushups and run a 10 K. That's awesome. And I'm not on any medication. So I think this is probably working for me. And then I travel to a different continent almost every other week. So I have incredible energy. And, um, so I'd say food and, and, uh, is a drug. Yeah. Uh, or a gift, and it's something that's worth thinking about in your overall plan. And the thing about diet is that you have to make sure that you don't diet. Diets are a bad idea. That right. What you really do is you substitute foods that you love with foods that are better for you mm-hmm. that you love, because mm-hmm. just taking things away is never sustainable. I think that's yeah. the biggest... That's why the New Year's resolutions never work. Yeah. Anything that requires willpower, ultimately. Ultimately will fail. And so you need to have substitutions. And that's true with any habit change, by the way. You need a substitution for the bad habit with something that's better for you. Yeah. No, that's, I love hearing that. And that's very inspiring to me because we were talking about this earlier that, you know, my own dad died at 64 with his legs amputated due to complications of diabetes. Exactly. And he had retinopathy and, you know, these things. And, and so you're approaching the age he was, but it's a different universe, your vitality and energy and where he was, although he was always very powerful. Um, and I'm inspired. I know I'm, I'm breaking my own rule in the lightning round here, but, <laughs> but it wasn't until just a couple of years ago that I read a lesson by a teacher I really admire, Yogananda. Mm, you know, Paramahansa Yogananda? Yeah. Okay. And he, he introduced to me the idea that old age does not necessarily involve disease and decrepitude and decay, but instead we can ripen yes. and then we just expire. Yes. You know, we just pass. <laughs> and I had always thought, no, it's necessary that we get weaker and we get, you know, we break down. But I don't think so. And you're further evidence that that's not necessarily true. It's so not going you. down that way for us. No, that's for awesome. My wife and I, yeah. yeah I want to be marathoning and skiing and wrestling with the grandkids and great grandkids. Yeah. When I'm 80 and 90 and. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be the same. Yeah. And with what choices. With what our friends are doing in Silicon Valley too. Yes. I'm counting on you guys, longevity science people. (laughs) You know? Well, you know, you you don't always beat the genetic lottery. I I want to make sure that it's not the blame game for those people. My you know, my wife's brother died at twenty one of leukemia. Mm. Stuff happens. Yeah. But then we have to play in our own favor here. And so changing and substituting some habits that are better for us, that feed us better to get the kind of endorphin high that you need uh, to, to live a full life is something that has to be done with intention. And I have to pay more attention to that than ever. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're doing it. Yes. So good, yeah. good for you. Okay. What's one thing you wish every American knew? This would be one, knowing something about how to feel better, having improved relationships in in two or in many different areas of our life realizing that to build a better relationship is a process of understanding what other people value and helping make them successful i wish every american knew that i wish everybody knew that sugar affects your attitude and your your energy and your health um so find other things that are that that sweeten your life Uh, i wish everybody knew that they can have long-term relationships if they choose to think about those relationships with intention and, and service to others. 
That's beautiful. I wish every American knew that too. <laughs> I do. Okay, cool. So I'm going to go ahead and ask this here so I don't leave it to the very end of the interview. But if people want to learn more from you or connect with you, which by the way, this might be a great place for the podcast, for your podcast. Sure. Because I think it's pretty recent that you've begun podcasting. Yes. Is that right? Yes. So will you talk for just a moment about about your podcast and, sure. and what your experience has been like doing it? Yes. Well, I think that the social media platforms today, the one thing that can really help you touch a community and share your ideas and, and get feedback on how those ideas really land on other people is to to blog, to use LinkedIn as a tool for me is, is one where I find that I can touch people around their career and their life. Um, and I have started doing videos and podcasts and I've always based my books for the last 25 years on interviews with people. I was trained originally as a photojournalist. I am much more comfortable asking questions than answering them. And maybe that also makes me even more uh, impactful, I think, as a coach, because I can help guide people through questions that allow them to find self-discovery rather than judgment. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say that podcasting is a great way to start to socialize some of your ideas so you can get feedback on it. It used to be that you'd write a book and it'd take 12 to 18 months. It's like the gestation period for an elephant. And you'd not know how people really thought about any of the concepts. So how are you going to start to bring some feedback into this loop of, of success or failure of these ideas? And how could you explain things better? Well, doing a podcast or doing a blog or both or doing little videos with people so that they can hear your point of view. I have been really guided. I, this next book that I do will have more feedback before it gets written and, and published than any other book I've ever had because oh. there's this virtuous cycle of feedback. And you'd be amazed at, you know, if you were to number what are the three highest impact things that you might share with the world, I guarantee you the one that you think is the highest impact is probably number two, and maybe three is number one. Even that is real information. And I learned so much from a conversation with people. So that's the other thing that I think the best platforms are looking for right now is dialogue, not a broadcast. Yeah. So, you know, conversations like we're having, I'm really hoping that people will write you notes, ask me questions. Yeah. That'll be one of the ways I judge whether it was useful to have the conversation. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. I hope so too. And I think part of that is that we are looking for connection and we are looking for authenticity, you know? So it's no surprise that that's the way, you know, the world is going, what we're creating with technology, what technology is making possible. Yeah. So reach out to me on LinkedIn. You'll find yeah. me at Mark Thompson on on LinkedIn. Awesome. And that'll be a place that I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear questions. And I answer, I actually answer those questions. I actually go in there and have that dialogue. Yeah. Tomorrow, in fact, I'm starting a, a series of videos that'll be done called C-Suite Mastery, the masterclass. And Marshall and I are doing them. And it's being released through the Thinkers 50. Awesome. And so the first one we're doing is on gratitude. Wow. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about what gratitude means to you and, and what you'd advise that has worked the best for you. Awesome. I will go online and I will let you Check know. Check that I'd out love tomorrow. To have that, will, conversation that email will come out from Marshall tomorrow. Yeah. Awesome. I'm sorry, Tuesday. Yeah. Okay. So then that's a perfect segue to this next question, which is if people want to learn more from you, they want to connect with you, we've yep. heard they can reach out on LinkedIn. That's the best place. They can place. visit your website. Yes. MarkCThompson.com. Mark Mark right. Okay. Awesome. And of course, they can find your books on Amazon. Yes. Or at their at any fine bookseller near them. Yes, Support exactly. the brick and mortar people. When, right, exactly. So, great. Um, 
Okay, so final final portion of the interview. Oh, and I do want to say this here as well, that as a as a, a way of expressing my gratitude to you for making time to share of your experience and your wisdom with me and our listeners, um, I've gone on Kiva.org and I've made a microloan nice. on your behalf oh, thank you. to an entrepreneur in India. Wonderful. Um, so I normally don't get to show guests the photo, but this is Payel. So here is... Oh, wonderful. That's just beautiful. I'm looking at a picture now of oh, a woman in a pink sari, it looks like. It's um, a person who looks full of life, ready to really take her business and career to the next level. So thank you for doing that, Brian. That's beautiful. Yeah, and she'll use this money along with another uh, amount from other donors, or they're not donors, but loan loaners, to help purchase raw materials, including thread and needles to expand her business. She's 20 years old. Fantastic. So... It's um, changing the world one person at a time. Thank you for that. That's role modeling it. Well, thank you. Okay. So the last questions that I have relate to the creative process. And, and this is probably my 52nd or 53rd interview. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. And I recently wiped my question set. Like I went, it, it kind of evolved and then it morphed and it got out of control and I haven't recreated it. <laughs> So when I get to this part right now, I, I'm just leaving it a little open, but I suppose if I give it the context of what, what I'm looking for here, what I want to leave our, reader, our, our listeners with is something that will help them if they want to do what you've done, which is to publish truly good books that will make their way to people who will then read them and use what they learn. So it's kind of some conditions get the book done, get it into people's hands, have it make a difference. <laughs> yes. So if people want to do that, what do you say to them? What, what from your experience has, has made a difference in helping you be able to do that? I'd say that the technology available now to do what we're doing here with this podcast is a game changer. The point that I was making about the fact that you can get feedback on the path to publishing is enormous because when you are, taking the leap of faith to say that you have an idea, a thought, a profession, a career, a method that you want to share with the world, the risk you're taking is you don't really know beyond your anecdotal experience with the community of people that you've maybe touched so far. And that's great. Hopefully, that's been a source of joy, or maybe it's been a profession for you, a source of income. The more people that you can try out these ideas on, and not just try out the ideas, but try different stories and different approaches to describing what you want to say, and get feedback on how to maybe optimize and improve that message, I'd say was the number one way I've convinced both publishers and myself to get in the game. And it builds your confidence, it helps curate what you focus on because of the kind of feedback that you'll get from that blog or that podcast. And it allows you to make, I think, a more convincing case to a publisher that this resonates and that this is a way of presenting an idea or a concept that there might be a market for. Yeah. It used to be that you just have to try to, to be sending it out to 140 publishers and everybody has the famous story of being rejected by all of those, which is true of my first book as well, Success Built to Last. Was it really 140? And it is for many. And if you talk to people who've published a lot of books, it's always a lot of rejection. Yeah. And that still probably will happen. 
But you can do that with a greater level of confidence if you've already had a conversation with as many people from all over the country as you possibly can and all over the world because that's now possible and there's really zero barrier to entry to have that idea. It also forces you on a schedule of taking what is a massive, overwhelming, and intimidating project of having a 200-page book or a 300-page book written and breaking it down into, well, what seven things do you believe? Yeah. And what seven different ways could you describe each of the seven of those until you have the optimal description of each chapter? Mm -hmm. So that's, test it out. Do free speeches. Go volunteer for a community organization and give a talk. And you will be shocked at how some things really work and some things really don't. <laughs> and take the feedback and, and iterate yourself to success. Now, it, it just makes so much sense. And, and one of the things that, that I love about that is, you know, there really is something different about, at least in my experience, between writing and truly sharing with someone. Yes. And having that, not just the feedback, but even the receipt of those ideas by yeah, another yeah. mind. Right. You know, that, that I don't and know. And hearing how they it. respond and what they think yeah. about it and yeah, then having I'll, that dialogue. It's amazing. It's amazing. So that's great. What, um, who has been influential to you in your journey as a writer? Mm. And what did you learn from them? I'd say recently I did a podcast or resurrected a podcast that I had done. A, I was asked by National Public Radio 20 years ago to do. I'd, I'd been doing a series for Schwab. I was running, I was executive producer of Schwab.com, and I started a little media company and a little media service called the CEO Series. And I started interviewing self-made, highly successful entrepreneurs and business leaders. That's when I first did my. Steve Jobs did his first webinar with anyone was with me. Really, in 1998. Wow. Um, he'd never done a webinar before. And he thought it was fascinating. My idea was that the average person is not going to have exposure to any of these rock star CEOs. But as the leader of Schwab.com, I was in a position to call them and say, hey, I represent 5 million people. We'd love to do a webinar with you. But they're going to ask the questions and so am I. So I was able to democratize the access of the first type of kind of call-in talk show that way in a different way than radio was being done, did it in a webinar format. So it was wow. searchable and usable. 20 and years ago. This is 1998. More than 20, yeah, more just than. 20 years ago. Wow. So I came up with that idea and started running it on the platform of Schwab.com. And then I got Steve Jobs. So I could, you know, they're all on cassette tape, wow. right? That goes way back. I had um, Jack Welch at the time. I had a, a lot of people who, Jeff Bezos, when he was just gearing up on Amazon, they were just a bookseller at the time. And having done that, NPR said, well, why don't you get out of your own comfort zone, Mark, and start interviewing other people who are really interesting. So I reached out to Maya Angelou, the great poet. Wow. I reached out to Nelson Mandela. That's when I started to decide that I would talk to the high achievers from every field and profession. And so those interviews literally added up into my book, Success Built to Last. It took 10 years wow. of digital audio tape that I made of these interviews that added up. And then Benita, my wife, went through and did a content analysis and that was from there that we found the chapter headings. What were the most common drivers of their definitions of success? So it was from those interviews that I found my path in that way. And I had this just incredible dialogue with people. Even if I didn't write a book, that's when the publisher was saying, we've talked to these amazing variety of people. You did a little NPR interview on that. That's a book. Let's, yeah. let's do this. And so I've always been biased 
I'm not the kind of person who can just go monkishly into the cave and come out seeing the light. I, I don't know. I'm not that smart. I'm not that gifted. I'm not touched by divinity in that way. I feel that I'm really more the mirror that reflects the light. It serves me as a coach. I'm here to show a reflection of yourself and help you find that deeper, more motivated, more engaged human being that's across the table from me. That beautiful light I see in your eyes, Brian, is what touches other people's lives. So anything I can do to, to elevate that, I can take credit for. <laughs> I can feel part <laughs> yeah. of that. Yeah. And that's what I do as a coach. That same service comes from my podcasts, from my interviews, yeah. from my books, from my coaching. And it's all one continuum for me of a virtuous cycle of service is to try to find the higher self in people that I can help promote. No. I'm just your cheerleader. That's beautiful. <laughs> well, and thank you for that. Yes. So maybe this is a place to end. Okay. So two things. Um, one is, and I've, so I'll, I'll ask a question this way. If there was a final thought, okay. And ask a different question. So we all have an inner critic. Yes. Right? This We talked about it earlier. The yep. thing that's working to keep us safe. Never goes away. Never goes away. Uh, and sometimes I, it seems the more we try to make it go away, the louder it gets. Right? That's for sure. The chatter is ever present. Yeah. Yeah. So if there was one, I don't know, saying, proverb, maxim, you know, anything like that, uh, that listeners could take their existing self-talk when they are working on their creative work. And they could insert this instead in their stream of consciousness. I don't know, maybe an affirmation or something like that. Mm. What might, but it's Mark Thompson's voice now that they can choose to put in their own flow, right? What, what does that say? You don't have to be perfect to do something great. That critic is saying that you're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not fast enough. You're not smart enough. You're not rich enough. You're not privileged enough. You're not look. You're not good looking enough. There's a lot of knots. Doesn't matter whether that's true or not. You have the privilege of your living, breathing spirit. You have an opportunity to have impact on the world beyond your capacity. I came from feeling I had no potential at all. You talked about the same thing, but I was convinced that I had no potential when I was growing up life wasn't easy and it, there wasn't any evidence that I had any superior talent. In fact, I was put in special class with my mentally retarded brother because I couldn't function at a high enough level. So there wasn't anything that was going to be privileged about that. So where do you go from there? Well, you, you realize that you don't have to be perfect to do something great. That's beautiful. You decide that you want to make a contribution on other people and then you go, and then they go, Mark, thank you for that. And you go, did that help? <laughs> Did that really help? How good do you feel when somebody says you helped them? Now, did I have to be great? Did I have to be perfect? Did I have to have all the answers? Did I have to be beautiful? Did I have to be smart, fast, strong? No, I just had to help you. Yeah. And how good do you feel? And do that a few times. That's why they say this, it's the service that heals you. Hmm. It's the look in your eyes, the person across the table, and then, you, then all of a sudden you matter. Yeah. And you go, I remember talking to Sally Field about leadership. I asked her about 
here's a woman who was kind of the beach babe, and then she became an actress, and then she started being a producer, director, Academy, and Emmy Award-winning, high-impact individual. And I asked her about well, women in leadership, and she says, Mark, people don't wake up in the morning and think they're going to be a leader. Who thinks they're good enough to be a leader? Nobody ever thinks that way. I'm sorry. You just What you do is you struggle and you fight and you contribute and you find people to help. And the more people you help, then all of a sudden they're saying, lead us. Mm-hmm. And you go, huh? Me? Moi? Yeah. Am I perfect for that? That's not what it's... Leadership isn't about perfection. It's about unlocking the potential in other people towards a common goal. And so... That's what we're here to do. And, and I would encourage everybody who's listening to this program and has the privilege of having tuned into Brian that the message that he's telling is that you are a soul who deserves to have joy in your life. And, and when that's true, the fact that you can give joy to others is a big part of your purpose. And yeah. That's it. I mean, like, that's the whole message. That's it, man. <laughs> right there. That is it. That's beautiful. Well, good. Well, the only other thing that I had wanted to ask in this almost now it's been a hundred minutes. I don't know how long the edited one will be probably not a lot shorter, but it's just something that, and here's kind of an admission as well. And I'm, I know I'm making a distinction where one isn't due probably, but when I joined the MG 100, one of the things that I saw pretty early, well, two things, one, Pretty much everybody in MG100 is further down the path than me in terms of professional success. You know, the New York Times bestsellers and Thinkers 50 and like all this stuff, which is a super privilege for me to, to associate with that group of people. But the second thing, and this was I didn't expect, was that most of the members of the MG100 seem to serve in the corporate realm, like in, you know, Fortune. 500 and you know fortune 50 and that kind of thing and i'm not sure what it is i don't know if it's you know something for me to mine with my dad and you know his devotion to business over for a long time family and health and spirituality and all that's like if i have this unconscious resentment or something but there's a part of me i guess it's maybe the sense that life is about way more than business which i know nobody's saying it's not but i found that as i got closer to that opportunity to serve leaders in the realm of business through the MG 100, you know, I thought, man, that's not what I want to do. You know, I actually, and I think you and I chatted about this briefly once Mm -hmm. before, right? but I'm really finding I'm drawn more to the spiritual and maybe even the mystical, Mm -hmm. you know, like this idea that something is animating, you know, everything living and maybe everything that's not living and, you know, like all of this. And, and I know that these things that we often don't talk about as a society um are present for all of us in our worldview and our you know our moments of whatever doubt or decision or joy you know that that all this is there so i'm not sure what the question is here but it's something about what's your sense of the relationship between success and spirituality mm. and how can we invite more of that into our lives regardless of what we do or don't believe about a higher power yes not a trivial question, and one that's deserving of a lifetime. And we opened with what's life about, so it's appropriate we close with a really big question. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I agree. The You talked about 
the MG100, that's a professional organization. So naturally, the center of gravity there was that he, Marshall, as he was curating that group, being a person who spent his life serving corporate organizations and being hired by them and admired by them mm-hmm. and cherished as a, in a sense, Marshall's very much the Peter Drucker who is the father of management science, and Marshall is the father of executive coaching as we know it today. He started that journey with great intention and with great love and great commitment to creating a what is now becoming a profession, really, mm-hmm. uh, over decades. And so it's natural for us to, as a professional organization and, a, and a, that, that fraternity and sorority, to start it around what are our common beliefs about that career choice. Sure. And that doesn't exclude a deeper sense of purpose, passion, and performance, or a spiritual sense of commitment. And what's interesting about this particular group is I get to learn more about each individual, and we spend more time together, is we get to start to have conversations that are as deep as the one we've had during this podcast. We've touched on subjects that are very spiritual, very driven by a higher purpose and an energy. There are many different faiths represented. There are many different points of view and cultural differences that are as dramatic as those you find in every country around the earth. It's a very diverse organization now from, from the people north, south, east, west, young, old, different ethnicity, gender, mm-hmm. background, even orientations to family. And so that diverse melting pot of ideas is, I think, part of what is the galvanizing force. With respect to directly addressing the issue of spirit mm-hmm. and, and higher purpose, I think that's a, a guiding force, I think, for many of us in our lives to treasure the mystery and to pursue and discover those answers for ourselves and, and find that, for me, in the conversations with people who live lives so different from each other that have all ended up having high impact on humanity. Mm. To me, that's that whatever that energy is, whatever that creative spirit is something that's made not only other people's lives richer, but enriched Marshall's life, for example, that he's been able to contribute to their sense of spirit and and contribution and and purpose and to, continue to be committed to pursue the mystery of, of why we're here and, and what we are to do. Um, we do know this, that we are here to love and be loved yeah. and to have an impact on others. And there's as many different ways to take that path as there, as there are people to take the path. Um, I'm honored that you're approaching this with a, a sense of that spirit because we are not companies. We are not organizations. We are people. Yeah who serve, whether it's one-on-one, hour after hour serving somebody in a hospice, or we're trying to energize a multinational corporation, we're here to help love and be loved. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you for that perspective. Thank you, and I look forward to long walks and long (laughs) dinners. Yeah to solve the rest of the world's problems around a sense of spirit. (laughs) I love it. And I have this theory, this hypothesis that there is no such thing as a problem (laughs) 
only pointing to our preferences. Right? Mm. But at any rate, no, Beautiful. this has been great. And um, yeah, thank you again for, I know thank you changed you, your flight to come in early. And oh, of course. I'm, no, I, we've been this. overdue for this deep dive. And so I'm privileged and honored to be a part of your podcast, Brian Miller. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I hope the rest of your time here in Utah on this visit, which is secretly, and maybe not so secretly, the center of the universe. It is. <laughs> and it's an inaugural visit because I'm now a Utahn. Are you? That's because. right. Because you told me you have the place at Summit. Yes. I so I will be, uh, I'll be, I'll be local and I'm going to be seeking your advice and counsel and, and how to become a part of this community. That's so great. That I'm privileged to join. Well, good. Well, I, it's a lifelong endeavor. I'm still figuring that out myself. So. Well, you've got a lot of <laughs> runway ahead of me. Thank well, you. Thanks. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.